Hello, good evening. Hi. I'm uh, Oriana Bandiera. I'm a professor here at the LSE. I'm also the only thing between you and a great lecture, so I will keep it very short. I just wanted to remind you that this is a lecture named after Roland Coase. Um, Ronald Coase got a degree in commerce. It was called commerce at the time at the LSE. And he spent about 15 years here as faculty between 35 and 51. Now, uh, Ronald Coase wrote a great deal of fantastic papers. And the one that I want to talk about you today very quickly is the very famous The Nature of the Firm. I want to do this for two reasons. One, because it's published in Economica, and uh, Economica sponsors this lecture. It is 80 years' anniversary of that paper, and it is a paper that actually relates very well to a lot of Marianne's research. Now, this paper, which I'm sure you all know, asks a very fundamental question, which is, why do we have firms? Why are there firms in the economy? Why don't we just have atomistic, self-employed people running around like Uber drivers like we see nowadays? There are still a lot many firms. And the idea was revolutionary for the time. It was the idea that there are transaction costs. The market transactions are costly because of asymmetric information, enforcement problems, and uh, incomplete contracts. This paper was published in 1937. I did say it was 80 years ago. That's 40 years before anybody started talking about asymmetric information. And uh, that's about 50 years before anybody started talking about incomplete contracts. So it's quite amazing. Equally amazing is our speaker today, is uh, Professor Marianne Bertrand. She does basically everything. She does labor, corporate finance, and development. Most surprisingly, she's excellent at all of them. She has received a list of prizes, which I will spare her the embarrassment to list completely. You can look them up on the website. They're all very, very impressive. But what I want to talk to you about is what they have in common, Marianne and Ronald Coase. Well, first is that they have very, very broad research interest. And yet, this doesn't come at the expense of rigor. A lot of questions all answered equally rigorously. The questions are very deep. Before Coase, nobody thought about asking, why do we have firms? And now those questions are like when somebody asks you, you say, of course we should be thinking about this, and yet people don't up to that point. And the questions, the answers that they give are crystal clear. They also share a questionable choice of location. They both left Europe for Chicago. We will leave that aside. Um, you know, Coase, in his nature of the firm, defined the role of the CEO as a coordinator of resources in the firm, but left it at that. Marianne's research has done a lot in, to improve our understanding of the role of CEOs in the economy, and especially to improve our understanding on how imperfections in markets shape the choice of CEOs, who become CEOs, how CEOs are paid, and uh, how they perform. So, for instance, she's shown how CEOs in family firms who belong to the family tend to belong to the family because it's hard to delegate to others. She's shown that CEOs have very different styles, and yet CEOs with bad styles survive. She's shown that many CEOs are paid for their luck, and she's shown that when nobody's watching, many CEOs enjoy the quiet life. 
I really encourage you to read Marianne's research, especially in light of uh, today's uh, lecture in honor of Ronald Coase. So tonight, uh, Marianne is not going to talk about CEOs. As you can see from here, she's going to talk about breaking the glass ceilings. I never understood why this ceiling is called the glass ceiling because I can see it very well. <laughs> I mean, it's there, it's pretty sticky, and it's pretty dark, so it's not really a transparent ceiling. There are people who make it through the glass ceilings, such as Marianne, and I hope she'll tell us ways that society can improve so that you don't have to be that phenomenally smart to break the ceiling. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for the introduction, um, uh, Ariana. Um, so let me just try to um, motivate um, this, uh, this work, which is really, you know, the way, the, way the, the lecture is conceived is really an overview of what has been done over essentially the last 10 years in terms of, you know, improving our understanding of, you know, kind of what, you know, kind of what is behind this glass ceiling and, you know, talk also briefly at the end about, you know, about policy. So in terms of, like, you know, kind of motivation, I think it's, it's important, even though I'm going to be talking about the glass ceiling, to understand that there's been, you know, massive progress for women over the last half century. And it's true in the U.S. And, you know, kind of I'm going to show you lots of U.S. data in uh, in, uh, in the coming slides, but that's, you know, true really in every developed uh, country around the world, and in fact, you know, kind of become increasingly true in uh, developing countries as well. So we've seen gains in terms of education, in terms of labor force participation, and, uh, and in terms of earnings. So if you picture, to, to summarize that, oops, and I said, you know, kind of, uh, when I, whenever this will not be U.S. data, I'll let you know, but most of it is going to be U.S. data. This is, you know, a picture that, you know, kind of demonstrates that women now, you know, graduate from college at, you know, a much higher rate than men. In fact, this has been true for a really long time. You can go back to the, you have to go back to the cohorts that were born in the late, you know, kind of 1950s in the U.S. Uh, to have a situation where you had more men graduating from college uh, than you had women. So, um, What's also been true is that, you know, in terms of labor force participation, women have made, you know, huge progress. This is, you know, kind of 40, uh, sorry, 60 years of data. You know, you, you see something, you know, that looks like, you know, kind of a plateau that is very much, you know, kind of more, you know, salient in the U.S. than, you know, kind of in other European countries. But there's been, you know, really growing convergence. Part of this convergence over the last few decades being more driven by the fact that men are, you know, in a sense, opting out of uh, labor force, which is another phenomenon that is, you know, super interesting that we're still really, I think, trying to, uh, trying to understand. And then finally, if you look at earnings focusing on, you know, kind of full-time, full-year workers, you see a same phenomenon of, uh, of convergence with, again, what looks like a bit of a plateau since the 2000 uh, when you look at, you know, when you look at annual earnings. So there's a massive literature that is, you know, kind of discussed what is behind, uh, behind these gains from the work that has discussed um, innovations in contraceptions to, you know, work that has shown how te technological progress and, you know, kind of reduced uh, need for, you know, housework, you know, because of dishwashers and washing machine uh, has, has helped increasing both uh, women's education and labor participation. There's probably a role that is being played by, you know, kind of better controls against discrimination. And then finally, the labor demand shifts have also been such that the importance of, you know, physical strengths, which is an asset that men have more of than women, has become less important, and a lot of skills that women have had are in greater demand now than they were, uh, than they were in the past. Now, 
With all of that being said, you know, kind of the kind of questions people, in, in the context of this convergence, the kind of questions people are still somewhat struggling with is, is the following. So first, as I said, it looks like, you know, massive convergence, but a bit of a slowdown over the last, you know, 15, uh, 15 20 years. Um, Again, I think in particular uh, in the U.S. Another, you know, another thing that people are still obviously discussing very heavily is that even though there's been convergence in terms of earnings, it is not the case that we've achieved you know, convergence yet. You know, in the U.S., people talk a lot about you know, 30 cents on the dollar, sorry, 80 cents on the dollar, women you know, kind of make 80 cents for every dollar uh, that men are, are making. And then you know, kind of these last two bullet points, which is really where I want to focus uh, the lecture, um, the fact that women re really remain underrepresented in those high-status, high-income uh, occupations, and somewhat different from this bullet point, you know, the idea that even when they are represented in those occupations, they remain underpaid compared to men uh, in those occupations. So a few, uh, a few tables and pictures to kind of summarize those facts. This is from a recent um, kind of um, um, kind of review chapter by you know by Blow and Kahn that tries to look at what has happened in terms of the gap, the gender gap between the 10th percentile, 50th percentile, 90th percentile of the men's income distribution and women's income distribution. And what you can see from that is that, you know, looking at the 10th percentile, there's been a lot of convergence. It's true, if you look at the 50th percentile, when you start looking at the 90th percentile, it looks like essentially since, you know, the late 1980s, you don't see much, uh, much progress. This is one manifestation of the, you know, of the glass ceiling that I'm interested in. Another way to look at these figures is kind of, kind of statistics that I computed from, you know, from the census and the, uh, the ACS that looks at the share of women employed by fractile of, uh, of labor income, focusing either on the full-time full-year workers or looking at all workers. And, you know, kind of um, what you can see from that is just the same, you know, the same phenomenon. So in terms of labor force participation, you've moved from 27% to 44% by, you know, by the, the, the first uh, decade of the 2000s. But as you kind of start looking at the share of women moving you know, towards a higher part of the income distribution, you see at the same time this dwindling of the fraction uh, of, uh, of women. There's a recent paper, you know, kind of when you use census data, you cannot go much. Oh, I cannot go back. When you use census data, you cannot go much beyond the 10th percentile. But there's a recent paper by um, Piketty and Carter that you know, uses tax returns to tell us what's happening you know, kind of above um, this 10th this percentile. So this is the same, you know, this is participation in the labor force, same figures I just showed you. You're essentially at 45, um, even like more than 45% in their data. If you look at the 10th percentile, it's essentially the same pattern as in the census. You're about you know, 20, 25% of women uh, that are you know, among the people that are above the 10th percentile of, of income. And you start focusing more and more on the top earners, you have further, uh, further weakening on the share of women. And essentially about 10% of women among uh, the top 99.9% of earners. Um, you know, other way, another way is to, you know, kind of depict this, you know, this, this phenomenon is, you know, pictures that you would see a lot of 
kind of uh, groups like Catalyst in the U.S. that worry a lot about, you know, these patterns is just still documenting how difficult it is for women to get at the top of a corporation. So, you know, the share of, like, female CEOs, this is Fortune 500 companies, went from essentially no woman in 1995 to, you know, 4.8%. So a huge amount of progress, you know, given that you start from zero, but it still seems bizarre that you are only at, you know, kind of essentially less than 5% by that point in time. And you could produce a very similar picture looking at other sets of, of large corporations. Um, another way to, you know, in a sense, kind of the, the last slide was really saying women remain underrepresented in, you know, top, you know, earnings profession. This picture, which comes from um, Claudia Golden's work, and I'll, I'll show a few more pictures of her work uh, later on in the, in the lecture, documents, you know, something that is slightly different, which is that even when women are in a given occupation, they are doctors, they are managers, they remain underpaid compared to men in the same profession. So this is essentially mapping the relationship between um, male earnings in a, given, in a given occupation and estimating for each of these occupations the difference in earnings between men and women. And, you know, in fact, if you look at this data, what's really remarkable is that it looks like there's really a negative line over here. So if anything, you know, the gender gap you know, kind of in earnings increases as you move towards higher and higher paid uh, occupation. Another picture, you know, to motivate this work comes from um, CSWEP. I don't know whether you know what CSWEP is. This is this, this group uh, that was started by the American Economic Association that is supposed to represent, you know, kind of women in economics and does a lot of mentoring and advocacy for women in economics. This is some picture I got from... Uh, the, you know, the executive board stuff that was attending. What you see here is essentially what's happening in our profession, in academia, where you have about, this is focusing on, uh, on departments with doctoral programs, you see your share of like PhD students and um, assistant professor that is about, you know, 30%, and then you see essentially, you know, no progress with maybe a bit of a slope in the share of, you know, a female full-time professor. Um, so, again, another way to, you know, kind of discuss the underrepresentation of women um, in uh, this particular occupation. So, what I want to do in the rest of the talk is, you know, I'm really kind of conceiving this as, you know, kind of trying to put all this literature, you know, at least as, as, as I read it together. So, the first question is, you know, going back to the key question, which is kind of why are women struggling to break this glass ceiling to the extent that I've convinced you that this glass ceiling kind of still exists. And uh, so I'm going to talk very briefly about education, and then I'm going to go through what I perceive as having been the most active areas of research over the last, you know, 10, 15 years in terms of trying to answer this question. And then I'll conclude by, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, kind of policy. So what kind of role can public policy, but also, you know, corporate policy, HR policy, play, if any, in trying to, you know, accelerate this process of convergence um, at the top? All right, so just briefly on education, I, I, I just want to make, a, I think, a, a pretty straightforward point, but I feel like we've, um, we, we've got used to, if you work in this area of research, to saying it's a massive puzzle because, as I showed you in my second slide, women are so much more overeducated than men today, and yet, you know, they are lagging behind. And that is certainly true. But what is, you know, what is still the case is that women are not choosing, still today, the same field as men are choosing. So first, 
thing. So this is the same picture. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using the, the recent ACS because I have field of study in the ACS, so I'm going to be able to say something. This is the same picture on the, slide, on the smaller sample than the one I showed you before. So in terms of college graduation, the overtaking by women around uh, the mid to late 1950s. Now, if you look at the share of women in you know, professional degrees, there's no overtaking there. So think about you know, medical degrees and professional degrees. There's convergence, but there's not that overtaking that you see in terms of college graduation. Uh, you know, I think another way to look at this is this picture that looks at the share of women in medical school, law school, dental. We are barely by, you know, kind of these, um, by, the, by the 2000, getting at the point where you know, kind of the share are nearly equal. But no, you know, no overtaking in this particular context. I mean, you can look at PhDs, same picture. You know, kind of there's been convergence, but no overtaking. I think maybe more... You know, more interesting, what I try to do with, uh, with the ACS is try to, you know, assign to each field of education uh, some measures of earnings, which you can do if you have census data and you know kind of what field people studied in and, you know, kind of you can compute average earnings. So you can compute a measure of average earnings by field, uh, by field of study. And, and what you see there, if you look at just the mean earnings and the, the gender gap in mean earnings is that Again, there's been convergence, but you have, you know, we have a plateau. So it's basically reflecting that for a while, women have been moving towards kind of men's, you know, field of study, but not much has been happening since the 1970s cohort. I think it's even more extreme if you look at the decision to choose a field of study that is associated with very high earnings. And this is what I do here. I'm kind of basically looking at the gender gap in the 90th percentile of earnings among college graduates, 90th percentile that are assigned to a person as a function of what field they decided to study in. And again, here you see women entering these kind of male field of studies for a while, but essentially since the 1970s, not much, you know, not much action. So the point I really just want to make here is just like we cannot stop worrying or thinking about education. I think it's been easy to say women have overtaken men. We should be concerned about what men are doing at school. Uh, it's not like we have achieved convergence, at least if you think about choosing occupation, choosing fields that you know, will put you in a position to, you know, to be a, a high earner. And um, so that's really the main point I want to do. And, and I think that I think we should so still be concerned by education, and especially, again, if this is not, if these choices that women make about whether to study you know, business or the humanities or something are not purely a reflection of their preferences. If it's just their preferences, I guess this is fine, but it may be a reflection of something else. And some of the evidence I'm going to show you later, I think, will be suggestive that part of this gender gap in what you're going to go and study at school is really a reflection of other constraints and not just a reflection of you know, gender differences in preferences. Great. So I'm going to, you know, kind of not talk about what I think has been, I think, the most active area of research over the last 15 years. I've, I've been uh, editing the, um, the American Economic Review for what feels like an eternity, but it's only been six years. And I think probably, like, you know, twice a month I, I see a paper that is on this particular, on this particular topic. So there's been essentially a flurry of, you know, first just lab experiments, that have tried to make the point that men and women have different psychological attributes. And the, the way they differ in those psychological attributes, the argument goes, is relevant when I'm trying to uh, explain the gender gap in earnings. In particular, people have argued that women are more risk averse than men, 
um, perform more poorly under competitive environments, in fact, shy away from these competitive environments. Some work has been discussing how women may not negotiate as much as men, and other work has been talking about women's lack of, uh, of confidence. I'm going to come back, you know, for me this is, you know, I look at this work and I think it, this is really a very open question uh, to the extent that these, you know, differences in traits really do exist, whether they are something that people are born with or whether this is something that people are taught. Uh, my view, and I'll try to kind of um, present some evidence suggesting that, is that certainly one cannot rule out that nurture is an, important, uh, is an important part of what might be going on here. But let me just illustrate what the work has been, you know, um, in the lab, and, and really more relevant for me is kind of, after all this work that's been done in the lab, what do we observe in the field? I mean, does the field evidence suggest that these things are first order in explaining what's, uh, what's been going on? So, first, in terms of, you know, kind of motivation, this is survey data, this is from a German survey, this is German data, that, you know, demonstrate, I think, pretty clearly that women are more risk-averse than men. So this is basically categories of how willing are you to take risk, unwilling, very willing, and this is male, female minus male. You can see certainly way more women uh, in the unwilling to take risk than they are men, and I think this has been, I think, re, you know, evaluated in many different contexts. I think that's, that's pretty much like a fact. Uh, the reason why this fact might be relevant in terms of explaining the gender gap in, uh, in earnings, and especially kind of what's happening at the top, is that there's a correlation in labor data set between earnings in a given occupation and a second moment of earnings, so some measure of like occupational risk. Occupations where, where there's more, you know, higher variance in earnings, also occupation that, you know, pay more on average. So if women are risk-averse, they may shy away from these occupations that have high risk, but that means they're also shying away from these occupations that have higher earnings. The work that has been the most active in this area is the work that has documented that women do not do well under tournament pressure, under pressure, and, you know, really just behave as if they are shying away from being in those kind of environments. So this is the classical study by um, a Gnesian co-author that, you know, a study that is done in the lab on college students and does something really simple. So put male and female students in the lab, get them to, um, to solve mazes. And uh, do this under two different payment conditions. The first one where you pay these male or you know, female subjects as a function of how many mazes they are solving. Right? This is this one. And this one essentially shows you the number of mazes these male and female students are solving in the lab under this piece race setting. And what you can see is that there's really no differences by gender in terms of the number of mazes that are being solved. Men and women look like they're as good at this task if you pay them under piece rate. This is essentially the same experiment where you're putting these male and female in the labs, getting them to solve mazes, but you change the payment structure. I'm no longer paying you as a function of how many mazes you solve, no longer piece rate, but I'm creating a tournament, and I'm going to pay you if you are the person in this particular group that solved the most mazes. Right? And what you can see here, similar population, right? so we should expect, again, the woman here to be able to be as good as mazes as in a particular case, but there you can see the two distributions really shifting. 
And women in particular, women solving fewer mazes than, uh, than men in this particular case. So that's kind of an illustration in the lab of like women performing poorly under competitive pressures. And, you know, complementing this is this finding in a follow-up paper that suggests that women actually are not uh, wanting to enter these tournaments, even if they are really good at solving mazes. So what is this? This is basically depicting, think about the prior experiment I just showed you. So you get people to kind of learn how good they are at solving these mazes. And then you ask them after that, okay, how do you want to get paid for the next round? Do you want to get paid a piece rate? Or do you want to get paid, um, you know, kind of under the tournament setting? And what you can see, and this is the fraction of men, men and women deciding to choose the tournament pair. And what you can see is that as a function, first, and so I should be clear here, this is how good people are at solving mazes. So there are people that are really good at solving mazes. If you're really good at solving mazes, you're going to win the tournament because you can make a lot of money. So what is, I think, remarkable about this picture is that, first, whatever, you know, your quality at solving mazes, women are going to not choose a tournament at a much higher rate than men. What's also remarkable is that this one is not upward sloping. Even those women that, you know, they practiced it, they know they're good at it, they're still not entering the tournament at a higher rate than those women that are over there that are not good at it, and maybe uh, much more rational in deciding that they want to go for the piece rate. Okay, so this work, as I said, has been quite, inf you know, very influential, and, and I think what's been happening over the last five years, I would say, even less than that, is that finally we have some work that helps us assess whether there's any bite to this outside of the lab. Uh, and that's important because ultimately, you know, we would like it to be able to relate those behaviors to actual choices people are making or, you know, earnings decision. So I'm going to talk just about briefly about three papers that have looked at this. Um, one looking at educational choices, one looking at job entry decision, and another one that is the one, in fact, that's the most directly relevant for me because it's looking at labor market earnings. So let me talk briefly about the, the Booser paper that looks at educational choice. What they do there is pretty simple. They're actually working with ninth graders, so that means like, what, 16 years old, and um, that are, you know, kind of basically deciding to enroll in some pre-university track in Holland. There are four tracks they could be choosing, you know, don't care so much about the details, but essentially in order of, like, you know, kind of how challenging or prestigious the tracks are, this one is way superior to that one, okay? And then what they do in the study is really simple. They observe the choices that the students are making in terms of which of these four tracks they're choosing, and then they ask, is there some correlation between those choices and how those students are behaving in the kind of experiment I showed you, uh, I showed you before? So they run the experiment, and then they observe, you know, which tracks the students are choosing. And what they find in this context is that First, way more boys and girls choose the more challenging, prestigious track. Way more girls than boys choose the least, pre least prestigious track. That all of this is true despite the fact that women actually have better grades in those schools and, if anything, are as good as math than the boys are at those schools. Um, but what, you, what they also observe is that some of these gender differences in educational choices are directly, you know, related to this attitude towards competition. In fact, they claim that accounting for this difference in, you know, attitude towards the competition explain nearly a quarter of the differences in uh, the track choices. So this is really kind of, I think, a demonstration that this, this is relevant 
uh, in the field. Uh, another study, um, and I'm not going to go through exactly all details of this study, but uh, is about looking at job choices. So this is a study that was just republished, I think, in Restart by uh, John List and um, Carl Thur. And, you know, what they do here is a field experiment. So they essentially, you know, um, create some jobs. They get a list of people that show initial interest in these jobs. Um, essentially kind of researcher type of jobs, research assistant kind of jobs. And then, based on, you know, kind of, you know, the, the pool of people that show an original interest, they randomly assign these people into different kind of payment structure. So ignore the small print, but essentially there's piece rate-like treatments, which is essentially a fixed wage in this context, and then there are tournament-like structures where you get a lower fixed rate, but you can get a bonus if you do well with, you know, here a bonus that is particularly large, and then team-based tournaments and another focus on uncertainty. My focus is going to be really comparing these to, uh, to those, but um, uh, this is the full study. And then this is really interesting. What they also do here is basically do this for two different kinds of jobs. General jobs and, you know, jobs that are described as being a sports-related uh, activity, um, sports-related job. Well, this is what they find. So this is the overall finding, and I said, you know, focus on T1, T2 compared to, you know, T4, which is really the strongest tournament incentive. So what they find there, I think, is very clearly that there are few women deciding to take on the jobs than men when they learn that this will be a job where a big part of the compensation would be based on the bonus, based on whether you do better than somebody else, compared to the, you know, piece rate, fixed wage treatment. Now, the other main finding in this paper, which I think is really interesting, is this picture, which is run exactly the same experiment, but now think about the contrast between this general job ad that we are posting and this sports job ad that we are posting. And what you can see here is that in the general job ad, essentially these differences go away. So, but you see in the sports job ad, these huge differences between the T4 treatment and the T1 and T2 treatment. Right? So that is suggestive, I think, that of the fact that small changes in the frame in how you present the job, you know, are really, you know, kind of have a very large effect on these patterns of women shying away from competition. And then, you know, the last study I will talk, you know, I will talk about is this um, study by my colleagues, which is in Gales, um, that is, in a sense, the most relevant one, I think, of all the field studies that have been done on this, you know, so far, because it looks directly at earnings. It's also, I think, super relevant because it's focusing on, you know, kind of men and women that have shown interest in having a career in business. They're all MBA students at my home institution. So what Luigi and his co-author did is that they run with our students, that particular cohort of students, the experiment to assess attitudes towards competition and do you want to enter a competition? And then what they did after that is let the students graduate and figure out what their earnings would be at the time of their first job. And then ask the question, first, you know, are they gender the difference in earnings at the time of, you know, exit from an MBA program? Second, can I explain these gender differences by, you know, how these students, my students, behave uh, in the lab experiment? And this is essentially kind of what they find in a few pictures. So first, 
Are there differences in earnings at the time of exit between our male and female students? Well, yes, there is. You know, this is for the mean. This is looking at the entire distribution. Second, is there any differences in earnings between our male and, sorry, between students that in the lab experiment choose the tournament versus the one that choose the piece rate? And the answer is yes. The students that, you know, kind of are put in this experiment and choose the piece rate end up earning less than the students uh, that, uh, that choose the tournament. And then, then you try to kind of put these two pieces together, how much of the gender differences in earnings at a time of exit right, can be explained by the choice of the tournament or the, the piece rate. And this is what this gives you, and I think the answer is, you know, Ruji might disagree, but I would say not that much. Um, this is, you know, about 12% differences in exit, you know, in, in, um, in pay uh, at exit, and controlling for this attitude towards competition knock this down maybe by, uh, by 10%. Uh, and this is true, you know, kind of uh, whatever, whatever controls you put, uh, you put into this regression. So this is a summary of like all of the studies that have been done to really, you know, try to measure some of these psychological traits and try to see, I have a data set, I have some measures of earnings for men and women. I have these psychological traits. How much of that gender endomy can I basically knock down by controlling for those traits? And, you know, this is kind of the summary. The answer, you know, 10, 15%, that's the kind of ballpark that, you know, you are, you are going with. So my, my overview and my summary of this work is that, so I think number one, certainly over the last few years, we have had, I think, you know, pretty convincing field demonstration that, this is relevant. This is an important feature, um, qualitatively kind of relevant. Uh, but on the other hand, I think we still, I think have not seen, certainly I have not seen evidence that would convince me that, you know, yes, I found, you know, I found the answer. By this, I'm trying to say that the magnitudes, you know, think about the magnitudes I showed you, you know, in the prior kind of set of studies, the magnitudes are just not large enough for this to be, uh, to be the, uh, the explanation. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, kind of maybe I'm making too much out of, you know, kind of one finding, but the, um, the List and Flory study really suggests that these, um, these differences um, in uh, gender differences, psychological attributes, may be really um, context-specific, um, right? So that the fact that you observe you know, very different behaviors depending on the kind of job that you're posting or even the framing of those jobs, to me suggests that this may not be something, you know, hardcore, like a core, you know, kind of preferences that differ between men and women, but something that is much more kind of dependent on the environment, right? Which is kind of nice because it also suggests that, you know, I don't have to fight nature here, you know, it might be more something about nurture. Women should not be competing in, like, men's job. And that's quite different from saying that women are born with an inability to compete. And thinking a little bit about policy, this also suggests that soft, cheap things that would help, you know, kind of make some of these jobs, like, you know, the sports job less threatening to women, um, could actually play, you know, could actually be very useful in, you know, minimizing whatever, uh, whatever effect might be coming from, uh, from these differences. So that's kind of my, my summary of this work. What I want to talk about next, and Oriana, is there a, a clock anywhere? No, sorry, uh, five past seven. Okay, great. 
Um, what I want to talk about next is what I've done, you know, kind of more work on, uh, which is um, kind of women's um, demand for flexibility. And this is, I think, again, after these gender differences in psycholo psychological attributes, I think this has been one of the other very active area of, of research. And this is, you know, science much more straightforward. It's not looking for um, differences in, you know, in, in, in trades between men and women. Um, this is basically focusing on the, the following facts and trying to see how much traction you get with just with these facts. So start with the, the principle that a lot of these high-paying occupations out there um, have long hours and very inflexible schedules associated with them. Um, that a lot of these very rewarding careers require you know, continuous labor force attachment, which makes it quite difficult for someone to take time off and then kind of re-enter on the same track as the one that they, uh, that they just left. And then, you know, kind of brings gender into the picture in that this inflexibility, this inability to take time off, remains, you know, more of a problem for women than men because women remain the primary provider of um, non-market work. You know, so it could be from a housework, you know, kind of more and more, uh, more uh, childcare. So I can, you know, try to, you know, kind of illustrate this with some work I did like, no, six years ago um, that was also studying the same pool of, um, of students as the one that Luigi did in his work, even though we did this a few, uh, a few years before his, so different cohorts. This was essentially kind of based on the survey that we did of our, you know, of our students where we um, tried to... Um, capture their earnings trajectories over time, from the time they left the MBA programs up to, you know, 12, 13 years out. So it's not just looking at one cohort, it's basically going back, talking to a lot of students that have graduated over the years, and ask them to, you know, recall how much did you make when you left, how much you make, you know, a couple of years later, etc., etc. And this picture essentially suggests that at the time of exit, which is really what is being studied in Luigi's work, there is some gender gap in earnings, but it's, it's fairly minimal. It is kind of, I think at this time, you know, data 7% or something like that. Luigi was more like 12%. But when you go and look, you know, 10 plus years out, you have what looks like a 50% gap in earnings. And this is not imputing zeros to the women that are not working. This is conditional on, on, on working. And what we then do in this work is really just, you know, ask people, I mean, kind of in all these years, you know, how much did you work, you know, kind of what happened. And what is very clear is that you see in this data kind of gender differences in, uh, in labor supply. They're not huge, but they are certainly there. So I can put, you know, the attention to this. So let's look at this one, which is a measure of like, you know, kind of um, actual experience or so minus actual experience. This is the cumulative number of years since you graduated from school where you have been not working. And what you can see is that for the guys, by 10 years, this cumulative number is basically a tenth of a year. But for the typical female graduates, it's, it's one year. Okay? The other thing that you, know, you can see is that at the time our male and female students kind of leave the program, they are essentially working the same length of time, 60 hours a 60-hour week, you move kind of 10 years out, and you see that there's been about a three-hour decline for the guys, but for the women, it's been more than 10 hours. So there are differences in labor supply. No, they're not huge, but they're certainly there. 
right? And so what else, the second thing that we do in this paper is basically kind of try to see how much of this gender gap in earnings, which is, as I was saying, about 9% for us at the time of exit, that's a 12% that is in the other study, and grows to 56% 10 years out, can be accounted for just by these labor supply variables, right? So you can throw in a few things that are more background specific, you know, like pre-MBA, what kind of industry you work in before, you know, add some measure of your grades. That does a little bit, you know, it takes about 10%, right? But you still have like a 45% gap. Now, what's remarkable is that simply then controlling for these two lines, labor market experience, you know, this one-year differences in the, you know, in the amount of time off you've taken, 10 years out, and controlling for how many hours work you week, how many hours you week you work per week, does all of the job. Takes you from this 45% to something that is less than 10%, right? So I think what's remarkable here is just how much you can explain by simply accounting for um, this labor supply. So, so I think what's written, to be very clear, what's written behind this is essentially kind of substantive you know, penalties, huge penalties in these occupations for any kind of time off that you take. Because we know on average not much time off is taken, but that plays a huge role. And also what looks like you know, kind of occupations where those extra hours that you work are really paid you know, very well. Okay? Um, so this is, now I'm going to go back to, I'm going back to a few slides to, you know, to Claudia Golden's work, which I think does a marvelous job at, you know, kind of putting all these arguments together with a few, a few pictures. So this is the one I showed you before, where you see this negative uh, relationship between, um, you know, kind of how uh, remunerative a given occupation is and, you know, how big the, the, the penalty is for women. And... And, you know, kind of the colors, I did not, you know, stress them before, but I think they are, you know, let me talk about them now. You can see, you know, kind of these, this, red, this red here is, is the business sector. Um, it's kind of interesting to draw the contrast between the red where the penalties are overall bigger and, you know, say compare that to, you know, technology. So in all the sectors, the women earn less than the men, but there are certainly differences across these different kind of occupations. Now, the next picture is, again, showing this negative relationship. But, um, and what's, um, what's on this y-axis is the same, is this gender penalty in earnings. What's on the x-axis is different. What's on the x-axis is the, elast the elasticity of annual income with respect to weekly hours. So use microdata and run a regression of log income, focusing for all of this on like full-time for your workers, on log hours worked. Right. So the coefficient that you get is going to be the elasticity. And what this shows remarkably is that it is those occupations where this elasticity is stronger that have the biggest, uh, the biggest gender gap. This is, I think, a really good way focusing on just one characteristic of work, which is like, you know, how sensitive your, your pay is going to be to how, long, how many hours you work, to demonstrate that it's this inflexibility that is really driving why, within occupations, women are underperforming compared to men. And what, again, you can see here is just the contrast between, for example, the red and the green, where a lot of these 
you know, kind of high-paying kind of business occupations are also occupations where, yes, if you're going to be working not just 80 hours a week, but 85 hours a week, you can expect, in fact, in those cases, your compensation to go up by more than, you know, 100% uh, per, you know, per extra, per extra hour. And that's in contrast with some other occupations here, like in technology, which are, um, you know, kind of have much lower elasticities, but also lower gender gaps in earnings. Uh, this is just... You know, I think this work is putting the focus on Iris' work. I'm, I'm describing it because I'm going to be reusing it a few times with, you know, kind of other data in the next, um, in the next slide, next few slides. But the, the point, I think, of the work is to say it's not just about this one variable, Iris' work. It's about a lot of the features of this job, right? So this is another table coming from a presidential lecture that contrasts, and let me just focus on those, like those business occupations compared to these technology and size occupations. So we already know something about how pay in those occupations respond to how many hours you, you work. But they, 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 it's more than that. You know, the nature of the work between these two sectors, high um, gender penalties, low gender penalties, is yes, more time pressure, which is you know, kind of related to this idea of hours worked, but also other things that are consistent with you know, kind of less flexibility. You know, these are jobs where you have to be present more often because you have to be in contact with others and you have to meet more clients than you would have uh, in the technology uh, sector. This is jobs here that are much more structured than those jobs. All of those features where you see kind of positive coefficients for business, negative one for technology, I think are reflections of this dimension of inflexibility. And so when these occupations are inflexible, this is when women are particularly struggling. All right. So there's been, you know, kind of, if you want to further convince us that this is really a big part of the study, you can all, I can also point at some, you know, very recent work, it's all 2017, that has been, you know, estimating kind of women's willingness to pay for that flexibility. So there's two kind of recent studies. They're both great. Uh, one of them is more relevant to me than, than the other one, but this one um, conducts a field experiment with people that have showed interest in jobs in call centers, so it's not super relevant because they're call centers. I don't think that these are going to be the 90th percentile jobs in the distribution. But what they do is essentially kind of once you showed interest in the job, again, randomize various aspects of the job. How much are you going to get paid? And also, you know, kind of how many hours a week do you have to work? Or can you work from home? And from that kind of design, you can basically infer people's willingness to pay for various job features. And what they find in this work is that women, in particular, you know, kind of those with young children, have, maybe not surprisingly, have a higher willingness to pay for work from home, and I have a higher willingness to pay if the employer can tell ahead of time what the schedule is going to be. This unpredictability in schedule is something women would pay a lot of money for uh, it to go away. The study by um, Wiswala and Zafar is, is very similar, except it's not done as a field experiment. It's done based on hypothetical choices, uh, but it's the same idea. Here's a job which pays this much, requires that amount of hours per week. Here's another job. It pays less, but uh, has you know, a few hours a week. Which one do you prefer? You can run these kind of hypothetical choices, and all of that derive willingness to pay. Now, they do that. The reason why this study is more relevant to us is that they do it with um, 
population of, uh, of undergrads at Northwestern University, which are, you know, the people that would have the potential to, to make it to this 90th percentile. And what they find there, and, you know, kind of this is a summary of one of the table, this is a willingness to pay for various job features. So you can focus on here, kind of the male versus female contrast. And it's all extremely apparent, this is in terms of percentage of earnings, women are, you know, willing to pay for lower probability of being fired. They, sorry, they, they are willing to take a pay cut if you can assure them that they will not get fired. Uh, you see um, a little bit of the gender differences in the, 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 the willingness to go for a job that has a big bonus. So, in fact, both men and women don't like the bonus and are willing to take a pay, take a pay cut if you take the bonus away, but it's slightly bigger for, uh, for women. Um, you see, you know, here kind of gender differences in terms of this hours per week. So if you are from your job that pay less but guarantees few hours, you know, women are willing to pay for that, men are not. And this one is, you know, kind of women are basically willing to let, leave some money on the table if this is a job where there will be a part-time option. If there's no part-time option, you're going to have to compensate them with higher compensation. Okay, so I think this is just, you know, I think another demonstration here from the, you know, kind of the willingness to pay side that women more than men really value that, you know, that flexibility. Now, the additional question which I think is, you know, the natural one to ask is like, why do women value this flexibility more than men? And I think the answer is, I think the first order explanation, the quantitatively, like, I think dominant explanation is really... Uh, got to do with children. And I'm going to just rely on, on some, uh, a few studies to, uh, to make this point. So the first is just this table, which comes from the same paper I talked about before, the study that we did from, you know, the Booth MBA. And we focus, look at these columns. This is this differences by gender in how much time out you've taken. This measure of, like, how much experience, actual experience you have. And this is the, the weekly hours measure. And this is the gender gap in those two things. And this is the gender gap broken down into two kinds of women, the women that have children and the women that are without children. And what you can see is that when you start kind of contrasting to men, whether they have kids or not doesn't really matter, um, you know, kind of what happens to actual experience for women that have, um, that have children versus not, or hours for women that have children versus not, you can see that the group that is just the one that's drastically different is the women that have kids. This is not zero, but this is much, much smaller. So to the extent that you, you know, kind of believe me that these two measures of labor supply are really what explain why these women earn 50% less than men 10 years down the road, then you, know, kind of you put these two things together and you basically come to the conclusion that it's the children that have this impact on labor supply the labor supply response is not that huge. These women still work many, many hours. They happen to be working in occupation with, where each additional hours is particularly uh, uh, valued. Okay? Um, now, a few other, you know, there's been a few studies, again, all of them super recent, that have been estimating these child penalties, you know, kind of, and, you know, providing much more beautiful pictures than whatever we can do, you know, in our work. Um, they all come from... Um, uh, kind of administrative data. So it's one study on Sweden, one study coming from out of the ERC uh, on Denmark, where the approach is essentially to look within couples and look at the difference in earnings between husbands and wife and document what happens to this difference in earnings at the time 
of the birth of the first child. Right? So, um, sorry, there was something there that was cut. I guess the thing that, that is cut, that was there, is, you know, so this is not the population that I really kind of centrally care about. It would be nice to, maybe this, it's in the paper, I didn't see it, but to see what this would look like. Focusing on the higher decay, this is for the entire population. And then, you know, this is Scandinavia, which is different along other dimensions I'm going to come to uh, later on. But nevertheless, these pictures, I think, are just really striking. So this is the Sweden picture, which um, shows, you know, gender gap that just doesn't change and then just, just dramatically explodes at the time of the birth of the first child and essentially kind of, you know, kind of never, uh, never recovers. This is for, you know, for yearly income. You have, this is a Swedish picture for average monthly wage. Again, you know, there, there are a bit of divergence there, but like just the acceleration of divergence between husbands and wife at the time the first kid, the first kid is being born. These are similar pictures from Denmark. Um, just, just visually, just, just striking. This is really the event that matters in explaining why wives have such a different uh, earnings surgeries compared to their husband. It's true for earnings, true for hours, uh, participation rate, and, and true for wages. What's remarkable about you know, the Danish study is that they are able, because they have historical data and can observe, you know, can measure in a sense those child penalties for people of different birth cohorts, they're able to kind of um, you know, assess what the size of this penalty um, is over time, and they have not gone down, which I think is pretty, you know, pretty remarkable. They are the same for people that were born in the mid-1980s as they are for people that were born in the, in the mid-2000s. Um, you know, and the other picture that, you know, kind of I want to bring from this work, which I think is really telling, is that, as I just said, they estimate this child-related gender inequality to be essentially stable, over you know, the entire time period, and essentially to explain essentially all of the gender gap in earnings by the end of the time period. There's nothing left for you know, education-related stuff that has gone away. There's been that convergence. And then there's nothing left that you could label, I don't know, discrimination, whatever is your favorite name for you know, what you cannot explain. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have anything residual to explain by the end of the period. The child is essentially what's uh, what's driving it. All right. So I guess what I want to take it now is, is kind of like, is there, is there a puzzle there, right? So if I look at these results and, um, you know, I think the question it raises is why are women, especially, you know, highly educated women, still paying, you know, this disproportionate price for, Carrying a couple's children, right? That's, I think, you know, the key, you know, the key question. And it, you know, on the one hand, it's true that from a biological perspective, nothing has been, you know, nothing is very different. That's probably like too strong of a statement. I think things have changed in terms of the technology that's available for women, at least in terms of like, you know, the timing of the birth of a child or the ability to have child, you know, later on. But ultimately. Women are still the one, you know, bearing the kids, and they are still the one breastfeeding, last time I checked. Um, but on the other hand, you know, and maybe what's puzzling is that there's been several of the forces that, you know, I believe have been operating towards, you know, towards weakening this disproportionate price women are paying compared to guys uh, uh, in terms of kind of bringing children 
inside of a household. So I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about non-market work very briefly, uh, and I want to talk about um, gender, uh, gender roles. So I think it's very, very clear that the amount of non-market work has been going down. Right? So historically, you know, there was more you know, dishes to be washed and all that, all that stuff has been going down. Time use data that look at like 50 years of data would strongly suggest that. Right? And even if you think about the childcare dimension, right, there's, especially for these more educated women, the ones that are looking at you know, either taking care of the kids or you know, kind of staying on the fast track at their job so that you know, they can get the next promotion, um, the ability to outsource some of that, a lot of that, is, you know, it's only out there. You can have, you know, kind of if you're willing to pay for it, some kind of uh, quality childcare. So it is certainly not the case that we live in a world where, you know, kind of there should be, you know, still a need for a double shift. That there's no way that you, you know, if you work, you also have to do a lot of that non-market work. Now, what I think has been somewhat operating in the other direction is another trend that we observed in the data that has been towards, in fact, more and more time spent with, uh, with children. Uh, it's a phenomenon that um, sort of, I think we see very well in the US data. I'm actually not so clear. I think it would be interesting to see some of the time used data from um, kind of other, uh, other European countries. But what we observe in the US, you know, strikingly, is an, amount, an increasing amount of time spent with children. And especially among the more, the more educated. So highly educated parents, the, gender, the, the socioeconomic gap in the amount of time spent with children is much wider today in the States than it was uh, a, few, uh, a few decades back. Some good work illustrating that. I really don't think that we have a good explanation for it. There's been some you know, interesting work by Valerie Ramey uh, and Gary, I believe, her husband, I think, um, that you know, tries to kind of relate this to how competitive the process of um, college admission has become in the US uh, and tries to kind of make something of the time series. You can see this escalation at the point where uh, college admission become important. But I think to me this is, you know, what has been going on on that front, the amount of time that parents are spending with children, is that going up, especially among the highly educated, is I think a puzzle that really deserves kind of more attention because I think it's relevant to try to you know, explain why we still are here uh, today, despite the fact that you know, we, we, we have dishwashers. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is, is, is gender role attitudes. And again, I want to first kind of you know, present it as a puzzle. On the one hand, um, well, General, general attitudes that I can measure today in surveys like the World Value Surveys or General Social Surveys in the US strongly suggest that a lot of these kind of uh, conservative views about where women belong are not as strong today as they were, as they were in the past. Right? And that's where, you know, kind of if you are the kind of person that think we should never worry about, you know, about norms, you'd say, well, yeah, that's obvious because now the women are more educated than the guys, so obviously, you know, the norms will adjust to the realities of, uh, of the educational markets uh, and the labor markets. No, so that's kind of part of the puzzle. Um, now, on the other hand, what I want to highlight is, is just a few things. So on the one, you know, first is that among all these general attitudes that we can, you know, that we can track over time, it's true they have converged. The one that looked the stickiest are the ones that have to do with um, the welfare of little kids 
if they have a working mother. Um, and that has moved, but not quite as strongly as other variables. I'll show you a slide uh, on this later on. And the other thing that, you know, kind of, when we look at this general attitude stuff, we are really relying on these self-reports. That's where they mainly come from. You know, demand effects of, like, you know, what's the right answer to give uh, may, you know, kind of distort some of these answers towards, you know, what I think is, quote-unquote, the political right thing to say. So we have to be a bit worried about how these self-reports uh, mask, uh, mask two attitudes. The other thing I'm going to say is that the, the surveys that match, that measure these, these general attitudes are quite limited, the number of attitudes that they measure, and it's very possible that there are some attitudes out there, you know, about where men and women belong, that are more biting today than they were in the past. Um, and then finally, what I would say about this is going back to the point I was making about, you know, kind of nature versus nurture when I talk about the psychological attributes. You can think about those things like women should not compete and women should be careful as really be another form of, you know, of gender norms. And, you know, the work that I highlighted showing how context or domain specific these views are would suggest to me that they really have more to do with norms than with uh, kind of hardcore, uh, hardcore biology. So a few things to illustrate this work. So this is what I was um, talking about before. This is data from the GSS. This is as long as you can go in the GSS. This is kind of looking at um, kind of different birth cohort. These are the main attitudes, kind of general attitudes that you can me measure in the GSS over a long period of time. Uh, I'm focusing here on the college educated because that's the group that's relevant. Uh, and it's very clear that on things like, you know, kind of, uh, married women should be working, essentially 100% of college-educated women believe that they should be working uh, as, uh, as, as, uh, as married women. Um, but when you look at, you know, other measures, such as, and, you know, 90% of men believe that. If you look at other measures, whether, uh, would you agree or disagree that, you know, having a working mother would hurt a, a kid, um, or that, you know, pre-K children would suffer if they have a working mom, Again, you've had convergence, but particularly if you look at the guys, you still have, among those cohorts born after 1974, um, a quarter of, you know, kind of college-educated men and, you know, kind of nearly the same of college-educated women feeling uncomfortable or at least not uh, agreeing with the view that, you know, a working mom is going to be bad for, uh, for a kid. So no doubt there's been convergence. Some of the things are pretty obvious, everyone agrees with. When it comes to children, I think uh, it's, still, um, it's still a bit of a struggle. Now, this is kind of, you know, kind of uh, a couple of slides on, you know, kind of um, the possibility that there are these other more subtle views of the gender norms that may matter. So this is work that uh, I did a couple of years back that is really focused on one particular kind of gender identity norm, which is the idea that men should earn more than their wife. Right. The reason I'm bringing this here is that this, this norm what was irrelevant you know, 50 years ago when women were earning peanuts compared to guys. But this becomes biting at a time where you know, kind of women are making progress in the workforce because now the threat of like, my wife earning more with me becomes actually real. Right? It's not in the past. So this is one picture from this work that is essentially just tabbing the... the the distribution of women's share of income as a function of women 
plus man's share of income. So this is within the couple. This is how much the wife earned uh, as a function of how much the wife and the husband earn. Um, and, you know, kind of what's striking about distribution is that it's kind of missing some couples over here. Right? It looks like when you get to the point where, you know, kind of the, the woman earned just like, say, 48%, 49% of the income distribution to the point where women earn 51%, which is basically they earn slightly more than their husband, you get this quote-unquote missing couple. And they could be many places. They could be marriages that didn't get formed. They could be an increasing rate of divorce. They could be different patterns of wage increases for women uh, and their husband as they get closer to this point where essentially this norm is, um, is violated. You know, what we do in this work that, you know, kind of complements it is that, uh, you know, we, we, we seem to observe what it looks like women, if anything, kind of reducing the labor force participation and reducing their hours worked as they become more threatening to their husband. As their earning potential looks like, you know, they could earn more than their husband. And we also see, you know, significant with these norms kind of like really playing a role that in those couples with, where the norm is violated, where the wife earns more than the husband, you see um, more marital unhappiness, more divorce, and you also see more of that double shift there in a sense, kind of where, you know, kind of the wives that earn more than their husband look like they're going to be picking up more of the housework, maybe as a way to kind of make the husband kind of feel more comfortable with the idea, and themselves, with the idea that they are living in a quote-unquote untraditional uh, couple. All right, so uh, another study which I think is just really remarkable that, you know, kind of I think should convince us that these, you know, these norms about, um, uh, about women and, you know, what women should how women should behave are still very relevant today, even among the populations that, you know, interest me here when I'm thinking about those women that should be breaking the, um, the gender gaps. This is a work by uh, uh, Mandy Palais and uh, my colleague Leo Bernstein. What they did is that they, again, so this is super recent, they did, um, they got MBA students, um, not on my school, another one, to fill in uh, uh, questionnaires about their job preferences, you know, kind of at the time where they, where they get started uh, in the MBA program. And this is actually, even though it's just a questionnaire, this is actually a high-stake environment because the questionnaire they're filling in is providing information that career services is going to be using to place these students into the internships at the end of their first year. So it's high-stake. And um, what they do in this paper is really, really simple. Students are filling this questionnaire, but there are going to be two treatments. A subset of students are being told, you know, kind of fill in your questionnaire, this is confidential information. Another subset of students are being told, fill in this questionnaire, and your answers are going to get shared with your classmates. Right? That's the only difference, whether there's a private anonymity guarantee or whether there's this kind of public condition where your answers will be shared with others. And this is, what, um, this is what they find. So this is um, one of the questions, the questionnaire, which is like, what's your desired compensation? And what you see there is, you know, so they, they're going to break down everything into three, into four groups. Single woman, non-single woman, single man, and non-single man, right? And the private conditions, you know, this is confidential, or other classmates are going to, you know, are going to see your answers. And what you see there 
is that there's only one group where, you know, you see an impact of the treatment, private versus public, on the answer to this question. It's those single women over there. So you ask the single woman to fill in the survey that will determine, you know, what kind of internship they're going to be getting. Um, if you tell them that others in their class, you know, I think very relevant here, kind of probably all the men in their class are going to see the answers, they choose to say that they don't desire as much compensation, right? Um, if this, you know, kind of striking, they look at, you know, other variables. This is how many days per month you're willing to travel. Again, you know, focusing on the, the woman, for the women that are already married or have a partner, it doesn't matter whether the answer is going to be public or not. They, you know, respond the same amount. For these women that are single, if others are going to hear their answers, are going to be aware of their answers, they are going to be much less likely to say that um, they are willing to travel, uh, to travel a lot. Uh, this is a question about, you know, are you professionally very ambitious? Again, you know, kind of, uh, this is randomized, so these two groups of single women are the same. What you can see here is that if others are going to see the answers, these women are going to be less likely to say that they are professionally ambitious. Okay, so I think really another manifestation that just saying that, you know, the GSS shows us this convergence and all of that, I don't think that we are done with, you know, gender norms. Gender norms are still remarkably, uh, remarkably important. All right. So, let's look at the time. Great. So, just um, a few more things on, on, on the, same, the same question, right? So, why are these, you know, highly educated women still paying the disproportionate price in terms of labor market uh, earnings for, um, for carrying children? So, I think... I don't have any answers, you know, full answers to this, but I think these are interesting, you know, questions, right? With the weakening of all the gender norms, with the ability to outsource more and more work, even though I raised caveats about both of those, um, there might have been other forces pushing in the other direction. So the first one is that technology may have, if anything, sharpened, you know, or make these high-paying occupations even less flexible today than they were in the past. And I think this is, you know, uh, an open question. I don't know about much work that has been looking directly, you know, directly at that. So I'll show you something later on that suggests that, yeah, maybe, right, um, this inflexibility is more costly, is, is more priced today than it, was, uh, than it was in the past. And then I want to talk briefly about, you know, what's going on with marriage and um, assortive matching and spousal characteristics. So on the first, your first question... The only thing that I did was essentially use the same kind of research design as what kind of Golding did, which she did at one point in time, but try to replicate this, you know, going from the 1980 census to 2010 census. And what I'm, you know, kind of representing here is the correlation between mean earnings in an occupation and some measures that I construct for each of these decades of the elasticity of annual income respect to weekly hours work, right? So this is the core correlation that, you know, Golden's work is talking about, my interest here is, you know, how is this change over time, right? And what you can see is essentially, so this is looking at, you know, kind of uh, female full-time workers or all, you get about the same picture that you've had an acceleration over this time period. Now, what also looks like a slowdown in 2010. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure whether this is real or not, 
I think one of the difficulties in doing an exercise like this one is that the definition of occupations change somewhat over time. New jobs get created. Things get, you know, kind of um, uh, lumped together that may not have been in the past. But looking at this and taking the result at face value, this would suggest that at least over those, you know, 20-year period, the, 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 the value of being willing to work this inflexible job has been going up over time. So the reason why this is relevant is that, you know, if you want to explain why these kind of gender, you know, penalties for having children are not changing much, right, in an environment where the norms are shifting somewhat, right, this could be part of the explanation, is that the inflexibility of work, the inflexibility of the high-paying work, as if anything been going up, not been going down, right, which raises, I think, important questions about, you know, kind of technological change and things like that. The final thing I want to, you know, I want to say is just because we're talking about what's going to happen when, you know, when children are born, it's, it's, it's important to notice, I think I'm not the first one to notice that, but that the marriage rates among highly educated women has been uh, going up, not down. So, you know, it is, you know, in a sense, more the case today than it was in the past that a highly educated woman is going to be married and is going to have children and is going to have to be in a situation where this, you know, inflexibility is, is going to become binding. So this is try, just a few slides I try to summarize that. So I try to put the contrast between college-educated women that I employed in the top 10 earnings occupation and the one that I employed below the top 10 earnings occupation. And what you can see, I mean, I think just do the contrast between 1980 and 2010, those women in the 1980s that are, you know, managers at firms, they are much less likely to be married, and they are much less likely to have any children than these other highly, you know, college-educated women that are in not such, you know, high-paying occupations. By the end of this time period, there's essentially no difference anymore between these two groups. So, in a sense, this is where, if you think this is where the inflexibility is particularly binding, these women are different today from what they were in the 1980s, is that they are more likely today to have children and to have, you know, in a sense, to kind of make those trade-offs between, uh, between family uh, and work. You know, complementing that is just everything that is, uh, was true, so, so I'll skip that, that is true and is always, you know, kind of remains true about assortive matching. You know, not only are these women today more likely to be married than they were 30 years ago, but they are married to highly educated men. Um, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, kind of a, a slowdown we move from here, which is very few marriages to over here, but essentially the kind of man women in the 1990s are marrying is the same as the kind of man they are marrying today. Uh, and those, you know, women that are in these top occupations are more likely to be married to those, you know, educated men, the ones that are in these lower-paying occupations. Now, this obviously goes with the next thing, which is, what about those husbands, right? How flexible are they job? If it's a matter of like bargaining, you know, child is born, you know, who's going to pick up the phone, who's going to go and, you know, take the kids to the doctor, if that's the kind of calculations, what well, really matters to know what the husbands of this wife are doing. So this is one way to summarize that, which is the share of these couples where this measure of like elasticity of income to hours is larger in the men's occupation, in the husband's occupation, than in the wife's occupation. Does that make sense? And what you can see, again, maybe, you know, kind of 
um, you know, kind of a, a decline over here, but there's more among these high-paying, you know, these women in high-paying occupation, 60% of them still have a husband that, you know, in sense is more inflexible with their work, if you just look at that particular metric, than, uh, than they are themselves. And they are more like that than the, the women in lower-paying occupation. So it's just, you know, what, ha what is happening in the marge market cannot be, you know, cannot be separated. And all the trends that we observe in the marge market actually could be a countervailing forces for, you know, the declining norms, etc. Okay. So let me just, I just, I'm looking at the time. Uh, let me just try to conclude, in a sense, with what I think, looking at all these facts, what they tell us about policy. And I just want to make a, a few, you know, a few points. Um, the first one is, well, whenever people hear about this issue of, like, women need flexibility, right, the first response is, well, well, let's give them flexibility. So let's have longer leave, let's offer part-time work, let's let women work from home. This is what firms should be doing. And, um, yeah, because that's addressing the flexibility. Now, what should be very clear is that while all these things might be great, they are not solving the problem, right? So you can give them more flexibility. They will be more likely to remain in the job, but as long as the flexibility is costly, you're not going to break the glass ceiling, right? You're going to retain more women in the labor force with doing all those things, but don't expect that those things will naturally um, solve uh, the glass ceiling problem. There's been some work that Blow and Cat did that suggests, and I think... Actually, I was, I was hoping to find a study that would do this kind of even more formally, but like, their work suggests that if you contrast the U.S. to other uh, OECD countries, what you observe is that you observe, obviously, big differences in terms of like, the family-friendliness of policies in, non, in U.S. versus other places. That has gone hand-in-hand, hand, they would argue, with more women in the labor force in non-U.S. countries, but fewer women in these higher-paying managerial positions. Exactly consistent with this. I think this is an area we should do, I think, even more, uh, even more work to, you know, to make this clear. Because this is really the first instinct. Women need flexibility, let's give them flexibility. I, I don't think that solves the problem. The other thing I want to talk about, which is something I think is, you know, of all the policies I've seen, the one that is the most appealing. Uh, because to me, it kind of goes much more at the core of the problem, is that um, gender neutrality with a lot of these policies. Right? So, um, and there's been quite a lot of work documenting the experience of Sweden, Norway, some parts of Canada, where they have tried to turn the parental leave into a leave where actually the father takes time off. The way they've done that is by creating quotas of like daddy's months. So if you, know, you have a quota, if the dad takes it, you have it. If you don't take it, you lose it. My reading of this work so far is that, yes, the father takes the time off, but they take just the quota, nothing more than that. Um, that it seems to have the benefits of, like, you know, fathers spend more time with the children, uh, and that may be great. My reading of the evidence so far is that there's nothing that's been very clear in terms of this changing the women's labor market outcome. But in principle, I think this really goes at the core, like trying to accelerate the changing norms, trying to accelerate, you know, kind of um, the asymmetry between men and women in terms of, like, how costly the flexibility is. Um, this um, just is a... A point about, even though I think these are great policies, we should be ready for these policies to be costly in the interim. So this is one study that I think that illustrates that quite nicely. It's focused on our occupation. 
So what they did in this paper is essentially track what has been happening in economics department um, in terms of like the tenure um, of men and women faculty members, contrasting universities that have moved towards um, uh, a clock, so a clock extension policy that will be just addressed to mothers, to extension of the clock to both mothers, mothers and fathers. So trying to make it gender neutral. And what they find in this paper is the following. This is what happens when you introduce this gender neutral clock on average. And this is what happens to women when you introduce this gender neutral clock. So the way to read these results is that the gender neutral clock increases tenure rate by 0.2 for men and decreases tenure rate by 0.2 minus 4 by, 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 by 0.2 for women. Right? So this gender neutral policy has the effect of increasing the chances of men to get tenure at these institutions compared to women. You know, what's happening here is that you know, the guys take the extension of the clock, but really don't spend the time taking care of the kids. They spend their time writing papers. <laughs> um, all right, so very super, super quickly, affirmative action. Just, I want to talk about that. This is my last, you know, and the reason why it's important to mention, because that's been the area, I think, where it's been the most active. If I think about in particular, what's been happening in the EU, the main focus in terms of like addressing the glass ceiling, in particular in business, has been to put in place these, uh, these board quotas. Um, and they've been you know, kind of making their way, uh, making their way throughout Europe. Uh, theoretically, they're supposed to like, you know, uh, first kind of have a mechanical effect. You're bringing more women in, this, in, this, uh, in these boardrooms. And then this is supposed to have kind of ripple down effects in that you will have more role models, you know, kind of, and, and break the past dependence. Um, there's, as you know, you know, kind of whenever you think about affirmative action, there's also a lot of potential very high costs here with it. So all these benefits are supposed to be outweighing, you know, whatever worries you may have about how an affirmative action program may backfire. So this is what's been happening. So briefly, you know, we did some work in Norway. We actually finally being able to updated with this work with five more years of data, so I'll be able to, you know, kind of be more specific about more longer-term results. But the, the work that we've done in Norway about the impact of these policies in terms of, like, breaking the glass ceiling essentially suggests this is not going to be your silver lining. I mean, and it shouldn't be so surprising. I mean, these policies are successful, like, indeed, you know, kind of bringing, in fact, talented women inside, the inside of the boardroom, and that's the direct effect they should have, and it's working. They're finding quality women but we find really no evidence of anything beyond that. Right? So the idea that you have now these small women on the board, suddenly you're going to have all these kind of additional benefits kind of spilling over to what is a much broader set of you know, talented career women, we don't see any evidence of that so far. Now, ultimately, maybe this is not so surprising because these policies, you know, if you think the true issue is about these children in flexibility, you know, they don't do anything directly about this problem. Maybe they do something indirectly, maybe, but they're really not addressing what is the core factor. And then, this is really my last slide, you know, kind of on affirmative action, there's a lot that goes out also outside of uh, public policy. I think a lot of firms are really trying to address this problem, and they are being very proactive at, you know, kind of creating these gender-neutral teams. And... Um, the, the one thing I want to say about this is that, that that is potentially great, so creating more of this diversity. The one issue it raises is that 
as you're trying to, you know, kind of make every committee, every important meeting gender diverse, you are putting a tax on a very small number of women. Right? This is one study, again, from academia that looks at uh, faculty members at uh, UMass Amherst and just asks these people, like, how many committees have you been on? And what they find is, you know, very clearly women are way more committees uh, than men are. And also true, just like in the first of the pictures I showed you, uh, women are much more likely, less likely to be uh, promoted to, uh, to full professor. So you can look at facts like that, and I think we really should do more work to go document, you know, all of this. You know, you can look at this and say, well, you know, it's, you know, it's the employer being uh, mischievous. You know, women are more likely to say yes to doing these tasks. So because they, are, they know the woman is going to say yes, they ask them to do it. This is one argument that... Um, this Vesteloon and Linda Babcock are making one paper, I have a much more charitable view. I do believe this is going on. And I think the employer is really trying to kind of, you know, kind of rock the boat. They're trying to make sure that, you know, important decisions will be made with women's input so that they can have ripple down effects, uh, ripple effects on, on, uh, on other women. Now, my, my only worry about this is that, again, it might be a great policy, but you're going to have cost in the meantime. And the reason why you're going to have cost in the meantime is because of all that I told you before. You know, the time that is spent on those tasks is not spent on doing research or doing the real, you know, the real core work. And all of that is particularly costly the more nonlinear pay is respect to, uh, respect to earnings. So that's, I think, a, a side effect of these policies that should not be, uh, that should not be ignored. All right, so I'm done. Um, how do I think about all this overall? I think this issue of job design is really, really key. And if we want to make progress, either something is going to happen in terms of job design or we're going to see a further acceleration of, 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 the, gender, of the gender norms. Um, where and how would this happen? Well, you know, ultimately the market might fix itself. At some point, if the trends in education keep on the same rate as they've been in the past, Companies will realize that they have to do something different to be able to um, extract all that female talent because the talent is coming disproportionately more and more from, uh, from women. My, you know, for me, what's the big unknown is what technology is going to be doing, which is why I was interested in like, you know, how these penalties and paths for example been changing over time. I could see a world where technology is going to help. I can also see a world where technology is going to make all this uh, even, more, uh, even more extreme. So I'm, um, I'm agnostic about that, but certainly that's going to be an important point. Um, public policy, as I said, I mean, I think for me the most, you know, the most promising policies are really the ones that try to accelerate the process of, you know, kind of getting rid of these social norms. And so all of these gender-neutral policies, particularly with respect to parental leave, I think go exactly in the right direction. They are the only ones that I think go directly uh, at the problem. A lot of the other ones, it's really not so obvious. And then just really my, my final point is that if it's about gender, you know, if it's essentially about gender norms, I think the role that we have as, you know, as educators and um, as, as parents um, is, is, is really massive. And we should just be aware of that every single day when we interact with our kids. Um, I'm done. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Clément Bousquet. Uh, thank you very much for this talk. Uh, I have two quick questions. First, uh, to your mind, what is uh, the share of all these gender gaps which is due to um, constraints and discrimination and versus preferences and tastes? And on the, on the latter part, I have a kind of provocative question, but what if women were right, willing to work less and spend more time with family. The sense that the well-being literature tells us that women are happier than men and that working more makes people uh, less happy. So the question could be, why these stupid men are obsessed with glory and money and not with uh, yeah. the children? So, I mean, so, so the point about, you know, certainly it might very well be that women do want it to stay the way it is and they won't be the one that are the main, you know, kind of the main provider. Um, so I, I don't think I have anything direct that I can point out about this. The reason why I think even with that you should still worry is, you know, kind of think about the macro implications of all of this, right? To the extent that half of the talent in the world is female talent, and we all agree with that, we, we are clearly in a situation here where a lot of that talent is not being realized. And there's, you know, kind of there's a cost for society of, you know, of that. Then we can have a longer philosophical you know, discussion that GDP is not what we should be looking at and we should be looking at some kind of like, you know, kind of well-being index and we should all be at home doing nothing or taking care of our kids. That, that's beyond what I want to say, but if, if we just look at this work, you can look at this work and look at it from a, you know, feminist perspective, which is we should have more equality. Um, you know, I, you can also, if you don't want to do that, which you know, I may not want to do, you can also really look at it from a macro perspective. And from a macro perspective, I think it's really important because, as I said, you know, a lot of the talent out there is being wasted. A lot of these women you know, could be changing the world, and right now, right now they're not. Hi, thank you very much for your insightful talk tonight. I just have a question. I thought the um, psychological attributes section was particularly interesting, and especially your insight and how many articles that you're, <laughs> you're receiving yeah. on these, because the, the specific points you brought up felt kind of antiquated to me. And so I, w I just wanted to know, do you think these studies are actually helpful or are they just reinforcing stereotypes of gender? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, we were having, I think, uh, a version of this conversation before. I mean, and, and the reason why, you know, I, I personally kind of, I first reviewed this work for like a handbook chapter I wrote, I don't know how many years ago. And at that time, we only had these lab studies. And I think the common element at the time, well, okay, this is great, those lab studies exist, but we really like to see kind of what this means in the field. Um, I think the fact that there are some field results for me is more um, suggestive that there might be, you know, something real, but what it is, as I said, you know, kind of, you know, I'm not going to go back to this discussion. Um, when it comes to purely the lab studies, I, I, I share a bit of that worry that, you know, sometimes there might be a lot of publication bias and obviously like results where we find gender differences in something are easier to publish than results where we don't find gender differences in something and that, you know, kind of the, the pure lab-based work might be somewhat, um, you know, might be somewhat reflective of that. The reason why I'm less worried now than I was in the past is that when it comes to the field work, you know, kind of, I think I'm less worried about publication bias there to the extent that people have strongly established these facts in the lab. So a study that would find, you know, you've got these facts in the lab, but I find that it, they don't predict anything in the field would still be really interesting, so would be likely to be published. So, um, 
It's also curious how we would never look at any other form of wage gaps, like white Hispanic wage gaps, by saying that the Hispanic are more altruistic, right? That would be, you know. Uh, one there? Hi, I'm Mrin Moi. Thanks for your talk. Um, so I was wondering, in terms of your policy recommendations and saying that affirmative action is not, like, does not have as many obvious effects, um, with respect to like, the developing world, um, misogyny and like, um, gender norms and identities are, and traditional values are so much more entrenched that um, soft policies may not actually work, um, especially paternity leave, yeah. things you've discussed. So what, do you think there's a difference? Yeah, and again, so I just want to be very careful, right? So I... Um I, I, I'm not, I, my point here when I talked about affirmative action was really to talk about how much do the uh, affirmative, broadly labeled affirmative action effort I observe uh, in terms of like addressing this particular problem which is happening at the very top, which I really link to these issues of inflexibility, how much you know, that can help. In my sense, both thinking about these policies theoretically in terms of like the direct levers that they have and you know, kind of linking them to the problem. I don't think they are targeted the problem, and whatever empirical evidence we have on them to me suggests that they're not going to be a solution. I'm certainly not saying that for any kind of like, you know, kind of gender issues and you know, kind of any part of the of the distribution, any part of the world, you know, we should be ignoring affirmative action policies. I was really thinking about them more as, you know, a particular response to you know to this uh, to this glass ceiling. One last question, this gentleman here. Sorry. There's probably no doubt with children, it does create um, a kind of a dynamic, but I wonder if it's a lot more complex because during the crisis, we saw a lot of people taking redundancy payments. So I suggest it actually, it's a little bit more complex than just having the children. It's actually a, a woman actually taking a redundancy and then that being seen and then having the child rather than a, to actually just going away and having a child. So you're saying kind of having the, the child, you know, as a function of how well they are doing in the workforce? No, no, no. no. Like, so the, um, the, um, the correlation to having a child, but I suggest it's the, the fact that there was a redundancy offer that then that made the, it was a good time to have a child rather than it just being a function. So that I just wonder if people, are, women are taking, there, there's a greater preference to give a woman a redundancy payment rather than a man. So then that would create a dynamic for a child to be born. Okay, so the women are okay more likely to choose that redundancy payment. So differences in like, in differences how much women like to work. Is that what you're saying? If, if there was, if that correlation, if, uh, if there wasn't any redundancy offered, yeah. But in comparison to someone that had um, just stayed on, is is there a difference in in that? Okay, that's interesting. I I don't know. I don't know much about that. Right. I think we close here. Thank you very much, and thank, thank you, you very much, Marianne. <laughs>